more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Matt Vaughn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU, and if you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State... Check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Alexander Butcher. Alexander is a second-year master's student in crop and soil sciences. Alex, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. So... Today we're going to talk about some of your research, your personal story. Um, do you want to start with just giving us sort of the elevator pitch? Um, what brought you to Oregon State? What it is you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so far, my research has been looking at these chemicals called elicitors uh, as an alternative to conventional pesticides. And so we've been trialing these on potato plants to control the Colorado potato beetle, which is one of the more devastating pests of the crop. Interesting. So um, can you describe sort of the the status quo of, of what are the pesticide, what, what does it look like for how this problem is usually handled? Uh, so right now, a lot of conventional toxic pesticides are used to control insect pests in potatoes. Uh, for the Colorado potato beetle in Oregon, that's mostly neonicotinoids. Um, the problem is this pest has a huge ability to develop resistance to basically anything you throw at it. It has behavioral resistance. It has uh, detoxification abilities. And this has been going on for about a decade now. Mm. So we really do need some different approaches to it, and particularly approaches that are cost effective, that are more sustainable, healthier for the environment, and better for the people who use it and the people who eat the crop. So what you're saying is uh, the traditional pesticides don't appear to uh, be working against the potato beetle. Um, with this new pesticide or new application method that you're working with, can you explain uh, some of the advantages or disadvantages compared to traditional pesticides? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the advantages of these elicitors as a, a pest control tactic is that they are, for the most part, sublethal. And that really helps with the development of resistance. You're using a softer selective force when you're not necessarily killing the insect. Oh, okay. That's sort of counterintuitive, right? You, you'd think that the stronger the, um, the treatment, the, the more it's going to affect people or affect the, the pests, right? 
Exactly. So it, it affects the pest more, but because of that, more of them die off and the ones remaining are resistant. So we actually want this sort of weaker selection. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, maybe. Uh, whether or not that's what the growers want remains to be seen. So that's kind of what we're looking at is, is what these elicitors are capable of doing and how they could fit into an integrated pest management program. Gotcha. Right, right. And uh, these elicitors, how long have uh, these been in use? Are they available on the market? Uh, if so, when were they first introduced? And historically, are there any success stories uh, with this new application method? Uh, or is that mainly what your research is looking at, finding um, out? So these have been on the market for a while now, but most of the success stories have been in... Um, I guess I should backtrack a little bit. So these elicitors, what they do is instead of being directly uh, effective against the insect, they work as a signal to induce the defenses of the plant. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. these have been really successful at targeting microbes and pathogens. Um, but as far as defenses against insect, that's kind of a newer field within the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and sometimes there's success stories, but there's been a lot of cases where they don't seem to work. And it seems to be a very complicated uh, interaction between field conditions, both biotic and abiotic, uh, the, the elicitor that they're using, so the very specific signal that they're using, uh, and even the cultivar of the plant that they're applying it to. So for instance, a study was done uh, two years ago on cranberries using elicitors, and they found it not to be effective at uh, protecting mm -hmm. against insect pests. Do you, can you describe more a bit about, so the name elicitors um, is kind of describing how it um, is stimulating pre-existing behaviors and pathways of the plant. Can you speak a little bit more about what of those processes is being is being leveraged? Yeah, so the, the term elicitor, um, there, there's a bit of ambiguity in the literature on what term these chemicals are, are classified under. Mm -hmm. So by the EPA definition, these would be uh, plant growth promoters, uh, elicitors are a term that a lot of literature uses to describe more specifically those plant growth promoters that target defense pathways. And for the most part, those are the jasmonic acid and the salicylic acid pathways. Uh, so the jasmonic acid pathway is associated with uh, damage from chewing uh, insects, and the salicylic acid pathway is associated to damage from insects that have a piercing and sucking kind of mouth part, so like aphids or, or things like that. Right, right. Uh, so this chemical, I guess, for the elicitors, the chemical compound or the chemical composition uh, of that elicitor, is that designed uh, specifically for one plant or is it more of a shotgun effect where uh, it targets a general pathway mechanism for all plants? I guess another way of wording it, it would be the salicylic and the jasmonic acid are these chosen specifically for the potato plants that you're looking at or do other plants respond uh, in, in a similar way? So all plants will have that jasmonic acid and salicylic acid pathway, but how they respond to the signal is going to change. And that's going to change not only on the, the species, well, the type of plant, so from potatoes, but within the cultivar of potatoes. So I work on russet burbanks, but... Uh, echo russet potatoes might behave entirely differently mm. with the same chemicals being sprayed on them. Mm. So that's, that might be a benefit of it, right? Because it's sort of, sort of specific to the plants you care about? Exactly. And hopefully that, that is one of the benefits to it. Um, 
But the trick is finding ones, the cultivars that people want to grow for other commercial reasons that also respond well to elicitor treatments. So what are the commercial uses of uh, the cultivar that you're working for? So the russet Burbank potato, we chose that one because it's a really widely cultivated one globally. Uh, It's the one that people use for French fries. So McDonald's loves the russet Burbank. (laughs) Uh, And for that reason, we thought it could have a lot of impact on the global potato processing industry. And the potato processing industry is what's really important for making potato helpful to global food security. It enables people to sell the potatoes at a higher rate and enables them to use it instead of a substance crop as uh, uh, an economic crop, a cash crop. Well, I'm a big fan of McDonald's, so you've got my attention. Yeah. Uh, what variables are you looking at? Uh, what response variables on the potato plants um, are you using to assess the efficacy of uh, this application? And um, can you speak a bit about your uh, experimental design? Is is the research you're doing, is it in a lab, in a field, on a farm? Absolutely. Uh, so we've done quite a bit of studies, uh, some on the lab, in the lab, some on the field, uh, some field to lab, uh, some in greenhouses as well. So we've kind of done the gamut of it. Um, As far as looking for uh, responses from the plant itself, we've really only looked at one metric there, and that was the structural changes to the leaf. So we modified uh, what's called a texture profile analyzer from the food science department. Hmm. Uh, We put a pair of scissors to this probe, and essentially an arm comes down, presses onto the top portion of the scissors, and closes the blade. And that measures the amount of resistance from the blade. So if you have something in between it, it's going to measure that resistance as well. And so we put the potato leaf in between the blade, uh, whether it was treated or untreated, and looked at how that changed the amount of newtons that were necessary to shear the leaf. And that's a simulation of the beetle's chewing mouth parts cutting through. That's very interesting. So it's like a... (laughs) Bit of physics. Yeah. Very hardcore equipment for... Kind of a delicate, <laughs> delicate plant, right? Yeah, uh, the amount of newtons was not much. Um, potato leaves shear pretty easily, so it doesn't look like elicitors really make enough difference to cause a structural change that would really impact beetle feeding. Um, but it was really fun to look at. Uh, modifying that piece of equipment was a lot of work, and yeah, it yeah. was fun. Right, and any other is that the main metric that you're looking at? Uh, Sorry, the main response variable from the potato plant? From uh, the potato plant, yes. Okay. And are you looking at the, uh, the potato beetle itself? Um, did you notice if you sprayed uh, the elicitor that there was just a general decrease in the amount of potato beetles or was that not something you, you looked at? Uh, So the potato beetle is mostly what we looked at. Uh, One of the first Mm. things we looked at were the effects on the fecundity or the amount of offspring that they have. Uh, So we looked at if adult beetles fed on leaves, um, not the larvae. So as they emerge from the winter, that population of adult beetles feeding on new potato leaves in the field, um, does that have an impact on the number of eggs in an individual egg clutch that they lay and how many of those eggs actually hatch? Uh, And what we saw was that there wasn't uh, any significant difference between the controls, but there was a significant difference there between the jasmonic acid elicitors and the salicylic acid elicitors. 
Uh, and then we looked at some larval fitness measures. We looked at some host selection measures. Um, overall, we had about eight different metrics that we looked at on the beetle side of things. So you're saying that neither of the chemicals was recognizably having different effects than just untreated plants or is uh, it, would the control be with conventional pesticides or? So untreated plants, uh, they were sprayed with water just to simulate the spraying process. Um, so what that told us is basically you can't just make an elicitor application at the beginning of the year and hope to see an impact on fecundity. Sure. But when we looked at the larval fitness measurements, we looked at things like how much weight that the larvae are able to gain, uh, how quickly they can defoliate measures of leaves, um, how much they excrete, so how much they're uh, bringing in, how fast they're doing that, how much they're retaining of that, all of those measurements. We started to see some differences. Uh, and likely those will relate to a, a decrease in fecundity as they mature into adults. Interesting. Uh, so I just wanted to confirm. So the application process, you, you mentioned you're spraying water for the control. Um, the application process for the elicitors, that's similar to also, you know, an application process for a pesticide. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the big uh, benefits to it. It's the same mm -hmm. equipment a farmer would already be using that they already have. They can just use a different chemistry. Interesting. And on the uh, potato beetles, I'm pretty curious the changes that you're observing, uh, it sounds like it'll um, be more of a long-term uh, sort of application process to see those changes. Now, do you think those changes are occurring based on some sort of genetic modification? Do you think it's a behavioral change? Um, uh, so we did try to get a little bit under the hood and look at the mechanisms of it. Uh, by comparing metrics across time. So one of the things we saw from defoliation rate to uh, weight gain for the salicylic acid, uh, they eat more, but they don't gain more weight. And then when you add the excretion rate in there, they excrete more. So that gives us kind of the implication that this is a feeding stimulant of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, the potato is probably increasing the sugars in its leaf tissue, they are recognizing those sugars, they're eating a bunch more, but they're not actually getting any nutrition from it, they're not gaining weight from it, and they're just really getting kind of sick from it. Whereas the, the jasmonic acid one, uh, we saw uh, basically no change in the amount that they consume, but the uh, weight that they gain and the excretion rate, uh, well, the weight that they gain was lower and the excretion rate was the same. So that tells us that there's likely some kind of um, protease inhibitor, uh, which is interfering with their ability to gain nutrients mm -hmm. from the plant. So in both these cases, the leaves are still getting eaten. It's just that maybe over time they're going to adapt towards not liking it as much to anthropomorphize a little bit. Um, so that's another you know, potential aspect. So with these, what it does is it reduces the fitness of the beetles without killing them. So you can still have other conventional pesticides in this IPM program, but the ones that are surviving those applications, they're less fit because of the addition of the elicitor. Mm. And so they have less offspring. The, uh, the population of resistance beetles is going to be lower. Right, so it's not an immediate impact on protecting the plants. It's more the second order effect of over time, these changes in the fitness of the beetles themselves. 
Exactly. Uh, but you had mentioned the, the, almost the host selection, which is another thing we looked at is uh, if we spray this on a plant, do they like it more or less? Uh, and that was something we saw as well. So the jasmonic acid seems to attract them and the salicylic acid seems to repel them. So that gives another layer of use to the elicitors. Um, you could potentially use them in a trap crop system then, uh, making them move to a more uh, favorable portion of the field, a smaller portion of potatoes in this instance that is a variety that uh, is a little earlier than your actual crop of potatoes. You can get them in early in the season, make a smaller but more targeted application of a conventional pesticide, uh, and then get more of that population of the beetle um, that also would have reduced fitness. Hmm. So uh, you're spraying this elicitor on the plant. It's, um, it's basically influencing the plant's natural defense mechanisms, right? Absolutely. And is this a... a one spray and done sort of thing, or do you need to spray it as often as you'll uh, spray a traditional um, pesticide? Um, so that's an interesting aspect of the research, uh, and there's more work being done on that, but what it looks like is from one application, you have a window where defenses are systemically activated, but there's also the potential for something called priming. And so what that does is it gets the plant ready for a subsequent attack from the beetles, almost like a vaccine. Hmm. So oh, I was actually thinking of that analogy yeah. in my head. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And the great thing about that is then as the beetles are already feeding, the plant's going to have a stronger response to them. So you're going to have that initial window where you can turn on the elicitor or off uh, the, the plant defenses with the elicitor. And that's a great aspect of being able to control the timing of when the plant defenses are active. But in addition to that, you have that priming effect where subsequent attacks, whether or not you spray the elicitor afterwards, are going to have a, a bit of an increased defense. Hmm. And so these are mostly, it seems like the thing that the beetles are interested in is the leaves, not the, the, the part that we're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. So they, they eat the leaves, they... Um, they leave the tubers alone for the most part. I think if they get real hungry, they'll go for it, but I've never seen it. Okay. And so I was wondering, does, do the elicitors have any effect on the, the potatoes themselves? Um, I would imagine that some of those nutrient pathways are getting disrupted for them too. That's a great question. Um, so there's actually another graduate student at the University of uh, Minnesota that's looking into the root-to-shoot interactions of... Um, Jasmonic acid in particular, she's using a different chemical to induce it, a different elicitor. Um, and what she's seeing is that they, there is an induction in the tubers as well. Uh, and that could be a potential problem. Uh, so some of the defenses in potatoes are glycoalkaloids, um, solanation in general, so potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, those kind of things. They have a lot of glycoalkaloids. And those are toxic to a broad range of organisms, including us. Uh, so if we're inducing a higher uh, percentage of glycol alkaloids in the tubers, that's not really a desirable impact. Mm. Sure, so it's all about the balance. Maybe we uh, just need to taste test different McDonald's fries to, to find out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, can you speak on the integration of 
of this elicitor, how would you see it being integrated into a farm that's currently using pesticide? Would they just completely swap over? Would it be like a slow process or what's the, um, I guess what I'm asking is what's the end goal? Where do you see this, your research going and how will, will it be applied ideally? Uh, so these definitely wouldn't be a replacement for conventional chemistries, but rather a tool to help reduce the amount of the conventional chemistries used. Um, so I can really see the benefit in a trap crop system here, uh, particularly uh, with that jasmonic acid. If you're able to get the right cultivar of potato that responds in a way that reduces fitness and is still responding to um, emit the volatiles that will attract the beetles after an application of a jasmonic acid elicitor, then you have the potential to segregate that population of beetles early in the season, make mm. a targeted application, um, and hopefully knock them down for the rest of the season or maybe have to do one more as opposed to three or four. If you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Alexander Butcher here on Inspiration Dissemination. Um, so you, you've mentioned a lot of different chemical terms, um, different different products that are being created inside of the thing, um, as well as a lot of you know experiences that you've had in the field and stuff. I was wondering, what does it look like on a day to day basis for you doing your research? Um, wet lab? Are you in the field? Are you kind of seeing it all the way through the process? Uh, so. I would say the majority of my work is in rearing the beetles. Um, there's not an artificial diet for them, so I have to grow a lot of potatoes in the greenhouse, and they eat a lot of potatoes. Um, so that's their only that's their only food source. They'll eat uh, eggplant and tomatoes as well. But uh, if I were to feed the colony other uh, sources of food, I would worry that it would bias some of the bioassays mm. I'm conducting. Okay. And you do this at OSU at the main campus or in a different location? Uh, so for the first two years, I was at the Hermiston Agricultural Research and Extension Center in Hermiston, Oregon. Uh, that's kind of uh, your northeastern on the Washington border. And that's where a lot of potato production in Oregon happens. Um, and the last year I've been on the Corvallis campus just finishing up some uh, more olfactometry work in labs, which has been nice getting out of the field as much as I love it. Uh, it's been nice to be in an air-conditioned lab. <laughs> sure. Uh, can you, so can you describe more about what olfactometry is? Yeah, so olfactometry is what we've been doing to look at that host selection aspect. Uh, essentially, you have two choices that you're giving the, the beetle, uh, and then what's called a Y-tube. So it's literally something that looks like a Y. They have those two arms. Each one of them has a different choice in it. And then you put the beetle in the long portion of the arm, and you pull the sense from it through using a vacuum, mm -hmm. and then they make a choice. Wow. And you do that over and over and over again until you get a sense of what beetles at what stages prefer what sense. Interesting. Like yeah, a maze so, for them. Yeah, or chemosensory response, basically. Exactly. Um, I know in marine research that they use flumes which operate in a similar um, sense. So... What's the uh, interest like? Is uh, are farmers and growers interested in this? Um, is it how do you see it being implemented? And I would imagine that industry company chemical companies are also interested in the results of this, right? Uh, yeah. So I see a lot of interest on the farmer side of things. It's something novel, uh, and from the the growing communities that I've spoken to, they're very interested in finding something new. 
Um, the Colorado potato beetle populations on the West Coast haven't really displayed as much resistance as the East Coast populations. So there's not as much concern or pressure to find that new thing. Um, but they always are looking to the future, trying to be prepared. So the growers are very interested. Um, I would say that the chemical companies, there is a few of them that are producing new uh, elicitor tech. Um, so the ones I used are mostly what are called kind of the second generation elicitors. They are uh, molecular mimics of that jasmonic acid or salicylic acid, but they're still pretty broad. Um, they'll work on most plants. They have, for the most part, high level interactions with that defense signaling pathway. Uh, but the in the pipeline right now are third generation elicitors, and those are much more specific to a, a part of that defense pathway. Uh, so they'll have particular crop in mind that they're designing this chemical for and a particular reaction that they're designing it for. Hmm. So stuff like that might be useful for separating the potato part from the, from the leaves as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or even integrating it in with some, some genetic modification, inserting a gene and then being able to target that with an elicitor to turn it on or off. Hmm. Uh, that seems to be some of the interest that the research on elicitors is going towards. Wow. It's an exciting field. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Very cool. So to shift gears a little bit, what was it that um, brought you to an interest in this field? Uh, so I knew I kind of wanted to get into agriculture. Um, prior to this, I had worked as a chef. Uh, I graduated from the Cordon Bleu and was classically trained in French cuisine. And I did that for quite a while. And so you were making a lot of French fries. I was making a ton <laughs> of French you fries. Were, okay. <laughs> and, and the thing about it is French fries and potatoes in general are the biggest source of food waste. Um, there's been a couple of studies that can validate really? that. Starches wow. in general, but a large portion of it is potatoes. Um, and some of that's just because we overserve. Uh, people aren't happy unless you have a full yeah. plate of French fries. And so some of that is where the waste comes from. But a lot of it also comes from the ones that are just a little deformed. They don't look quite right. And a lot of those deformations uh, come from insect damage or pathogens. And so that kind of guided what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of get on top of that food waste. Uh, doing research on pest management in potatoes seemed like a great way to do that. That's awesome. So seeing um, all the food waste in the, in the restaurant industry, that's really what, what inspired you um, to get into this field. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is insane, the amount of food waste that, uh, not just America, I, I've cooked in a couple of other countries and there's food waste everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great pursuit that you're following and, and where do you see it leading you in, in, in the future? Ah, uh, <laughs> big question. Yeah, it is. I could see it going in a lot of different ways. I know personally, um, I would like it to go more in the direction of insect agriculture. So that's rearing insects, uh, both for human consumption, uh, feed for livestock and aquaculture, mm -hmm. uh, and as well uh, as using them to upcycle uh, food waste into both feed for livestock and frass, which is the the waste product of insects, their exoskeletons, their feces, all of that. But it's a really powerful fertilizer and it's great for carbon sequestration. And it even has a component of it, uh, chitin, which acts as an elicitor. Interesting. It, it sounds like a, 
great idea on a lot of these sustainability fronts. Um, how, what do you think about the the challenges of sort of selling this idea of consuming insects or at the very least integrating them in agriculture a lot more proactively? Yeah. Um, so if you had asked that question five, 10 years ago, uh, it was probably a more bleak answer. But now with the, the industry in the U.S. kind of pivoting towards feeding livestock, there's a lot more acceptance um, and the industry is starting to gain a foothold. Uh, so I, I can see that being kind of the big first steps over the next couple of years in the U.S. is doing these insect agricultural activities to feed livestock, to feed cattle, uh, chickens, mm. fish. Um, and I think through that, people will become a little more open-minded to the consumption of certain insects. There, there's definitely some of them that don't look appealing, some of them that have that ick factor, <laughs> but there's some that you can dress them up really easily and I don't think people would have a problem with it. So your background as a chef, does that come in handy? And, uh, do, and do you partake in the insect eating? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and it definitely comes in handy on the, the selling points of it. People are more willing to trust someone who has a background oh, in yeah, culinary true. arts. And they're like, oh, yeah, yep. well, this is okay. <laughs> Let's chef try approved. it. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, your eyes, uh, you seem to brighten up a bit when you're, when you're talking about insects. Definitely. Is that a passion of yours as well? Absolutely, yeah. I've always loved insects. And you've, you, I think you were telling us um, you have some you have been sh- sh- starting some some programs here at Oregon State related to your love of insects. Yeah, so about five months ago, um, I started uh, the uh, bug club at OSU. The, this is kind of the second iteration. There was an entomology club a couple of years back that just kind of lost its way and was disbanded. But I think the interest has remained and we're starting to get more, uh, particularly at the graduate level, more students who are interested in entomology. And uh, it was actually at one of the international conferences for the Entomological Society of America that we were all talking and we're like, man, we we need something to kind of unify us. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back, I looked into what it would take to start up a club and We've been doing that, uh, and it's it's going really well. We're almost at sixty members now. Wow. Um, we have a lot of fun activities and a lot of community outreach. And yeah, we, we posted a link to uh, the club website on the post uh, on inspiration on blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration. So if you are wanting to check out Alexander's um, blog post there, there's also a link to their website there, as well as a a very nice picture of the potato beetles themselves. Was that, was that taken by, by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately there is not a lot of opportunity for photographing them, not on top of each other, uh, particularly the adults, but I, I have gotten a lot better. Um, rearing insects has given me a lot of opportunity to use the macro lens, kind of figure out how photographing insects works. Um, I had a lot of tutelage from Chris Hedstrom uh, at the IPM Center. Hmm. Uh, he's an excellent insect photographer and definitely showed me some tips and tricks for it. Very cool. I've got another heavy hitter for you. Um, so you're interested in protecting plants from bugs and you're interested in bugs uh, or insects. Whose side are you on? Can you, uh, yeah, or can you talk about a possible intersect uh, between those two fields? Uh, absolutely. So 
In potatoes, it's a little trickier, particularly with the, the Colorado potato beetle, because um, it eats the foliage and it's kind of separated from the parts we eat. But in a lot of IPM, uh, integrated pest management, uh, when you're trying to deter the pest, you're trying to lower the, the threshold of damage or its residue on a crop. And I will argue for higher thresholds, particularly at a processing level, of just allowing some of those insects to be in the field, to be present, to be a part of your foodstuffs. Uh, I mean, in a process, so say like blueberry jam, for instance, if there's a couple of insects' legs in there, you're never going to notice it. You're never going <laughs> to care. It's just extra nutrient value. And it's probably a lot better for you than some of the chemicals are spraying to keep them out. Mm-hmm. All right. Um so I, I understand that you are going to be continuing on into a PhD degree, PhD degree in the fall. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what are sort of the next steps for your re- research program? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be moving away from potatoes and into wine grapes. Um, I'll be looking at the vine mealy bug there. Uh, we're still kind of figuring out what exactly we'll be looking at, but it'll likely involve... Um, some non-conventional control mechanisms, probably a lot of biocontrol, um, looking at pheromones to kind of control where the insects go, mating disruption with the pheromones, uh, and potentially looking at parasitoids um, uh, or entomopathogenic fungi or nematodes. But with a similar goal of essentially protecting grapes as you are with potatoes? Yeah, so so protecting the grapes uh, from this kind of newer uh, infestation. They're uh, an invasive species that's just kind of emerging in Oregon right now. Um, and so wine growers are concerned about that. And it'll give me an opportunity to expand kind of the, the non-conventional pest control that I'm hoping to work on. Cool. Well, I think we're sort of coming towards the end of our our talk today. Um, and we have a couple of traditions that we always do on the air. Um, so one is we always ask, what is your f- the favorite part about your research? I think the favorite thing about this research to me has been just how much creativity I was able to insert into it. Um, there was so many possibilities to look at how these chemicals worked. Uh, I was given very little restrictions at that. And it's been fun. So in particular, like designing that texture profile analysis study and modifying that piece of equipment was a ton of fun. Very cool. Kind of turned into a mechanical engineer for a little bit. Oh, absolutely. All right. Um, And another thing is we asked you to prepare a piece of advice for anyone at all. It could be somebody wanting to join grad school or whoever. Um, so do you want to say what your advice is and who it's for? Sure. Um, gosh, that's a tough question. I would probably say that if I was going to offer advice, I'd, I'd do it kind of generally to anyone coming into OSU or uh, university in general. Um, it is going to be a little challenging and particularly in the context of, um, climate change and all these global conflicts, pandemics. And we've had a rough run of it the past couple of years, and it can be incredibly discouraging. Um, but I think it's important to remember that no matter what time just goes on, this is the future that we have. And the best thing we can do is try to make it a positive one. And that means doing some hard work. And oftentimes that's what university will be for you. 
that's what we're all about here at Inspiration Dissemination. <laughs> that's great. Um, and then the last piece um, that we're going to do today is you get to pick your outro song. So do you want to tell us about this a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to end things on a, a bit of an uplifting note, um, highlight the potatoes that I've been working on and how even small potatoes can add up to a, a big thing. So it's been great to be on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great to have you. Wow. Yeah, I've learned a lot. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. All right, with that, we're going to take it to Small Potatoes. Small Potatoes on the moon. Small Potatoes in the sea. Small Potatoes take a bath. Small Potatoes sing with me. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Camvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.